Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD Plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that the effects of gluten exposure can last for up to six months. If you think you're doing yourself a favor by gorging on bread only once a week, it's a major mistake for your health. Some people are more tolerant than others, but people with a damaged gut need to eliminate gluten entirely. Putting gluten on your, quote, cheat day, even if you're on like the four-hour body or something, just doesn't work. You're cheating your health. You can eat lots of carbs, you can handle some sugar, but there are some toxins and some irritants like gluten that you really just ought not to consume because it's going to take you six months to recover from it, not six days. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. We have a great interview today with Dr. Terry Walls. Dr. Walls is a licensed medical doctor who used nutrition and electrostimulation therapy to put her multiple sclerosis into remission. Dr. Walls comes on Upgraded Self Radio to talk about how you can use the same techniques to live a healthier, longer life. I'm particularly excited to have Dr. Walls on because I've used a lot of electrical modalities, including electro-stim, 
and we're going to be including ElectroStem work in the September timeframe Bulletproof conference that's going to be happening in the Bay Area. So I'm pretty excited to have some of that on our show today. We follow that with really good listener Q&A today, where we discuss whether or not buckwheat is bulletproof, whether or not post-workout carbs are needed for muscle growth, dry mouth after eating the bulletproof diet, and the problems with hemp protein. As always, we close with a biohacker report where you'll hear a brief summary of three new pieces of research. This week, we talk about easing pain of migraines with transcranial direct current stimulation, another brain electrical hacking technology, improving muscle growth with protein timing, and optimizing your own health and even your child's health with adequate vitamin D supplementation. Army, what biohacks have you been working on this week? Over the past week or so, or probably a little longer, I've been sleeping anywhere from maybe 11 to 13 hours a night. And I did actually have Lyme disease recently, so I think that's part of it. You know, I train a lot, so I'm going to sleep more than most people, and I'm 17. So all those things are going to increase my sleep needs, but it felt a little excessive to be spending more than 50% of my waking time alive sleeping. So I've decided to try and measure whether or not my sleep is efficient. And so I've started using my Zio again to track it. And what I found is that my sleep efficiency, the actual quality of my sleep, had actually dropped slightly over that period. So I've been doing something, a tip from Ben Rubin, a friend of ours, from whom the inventor of Zio, and that's sleep restriction therapy. So you purposely stay up about a half an hour later and then get up at the same time in the morning. And it has increased my sleep efficiency and my sleep score. So I'm actually getting more deep sleep and REM sleep than I was before by slightly restricting my sleep just a little bit. What about you? Have you been working on anything cool? Most definitely. I was going to mention with what you just said about sleep restriction therapy, at the South by Southwest conference, I believe it was Michael Scanlon, the chief scientist from Lumosity, one of the brain training software companies. Uh, He and I were on a panel and he mentioned some really cool data about people who sleep more than eight hours a night and cognitive function. And it turns out if you're getting too much sleep, depending on the demands on your body, of course, and and you put unusual demands on yours because of your training levels and your age, but that if you sleep more than that as an adult, that you will actually, on average, have lower cognitive function. This isn't causative. It doesn't say sleep causes lower cognitive function, but it says people who need excessive amounts of sleep to feel okay oftentimes may have cognitive dysfunction going on. So for you, I think Lyme disease could have been a part of that. But it's pretty cool that you've already turned up your efficiency because you know bulletproof sleep is, well, bulletproof. I've been working on a couple of different things this week, but one of the things that's caught my attention is the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in my blood. The Bulletproof Diet restricts omega-6 oils essentially as much as you can. You really don't want to be having tons of omega-6 oils. There's arguments about them being essential that says they may not be that essential. And most people who eat a standard American diet may have a ratio of 40 to 1. That's 40 omega-6s to 1 omega-3. I got my Wellness FX results back, and you can read more about Wellness FX on our blog post about Wellness FX. And we have a $100 off deal too, if you're interested in getting your own blood numbers. But one of the things they measure is this 6 to 3 ratio. It turns out that mine was 1.5 to 1, which is about the lowest ratio that I've heard of. So I'll be talking with Dr. Jack Cruz, who is also a big fan of our Bulletproof Coffee. Uh, He's a neurosurgeon, and he's been working on using cold therapy as one of the ways to get this ratio very, very low to improve health. So I'm going to compare notes with him over the next couple of weeks and see what we learn about getting this ratio where it can go, which is essentially down to a one-to-one level, potentially. Interesting. 
We also talked some about dietary recommendations in our interview with Terry Walls and how she used her diet to cure or put into remission her multiple sclerosis. And now we're going to have that interview with Dr. Terry Walls. Her body ravaged by secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, Dr. Terry Walls spent nearly four years in a wheelchair. Now, thanks to the intensive directed nutrition and neuromuscular electrical stimulation protocols she developed, Dr. Walls rides her bicycle to work. She's brought together a team to conduct clinical trials using intensive directed nutrition and neuromuscular electrical stimulation to combat advanced Parkinson's disease and secondary and primary progressive multiple sclerosis. She's a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she teaches residents and medical students in primary care and rounds in traumatic brain injury clinics. She's also committed to helping the public learn about the connection between the foods we eat and the health we have or do not have, and lectures nationally and regionally on the use of intensive directed nutrition to restore health. She's the author of Minding My Mitochondria and is working on a new book, Up From the Chair. Dr. Walls comes on Upgraded Self Radio today to talk about how you can prevent multiple sclerosis, help loved ones recover, optimize your health, and become as resilient as possible with nutrition and technology. Dr. Walls, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to have you today because there aren't that many physicians who both have the burning personal desire, (laughs) as in, I'm sick and I need to get better, and also the knowledge of the electrical side of things as well as the nutrition side of things. As a a so-called biohacker, for years, I've been using both electrical and nutritional modalities to increase my own performance and also to recover from uh, some pretty ugly toxic problems, including brain dysfunction, all sorts of things like that, as well as having an extra 100 pounds. So I, I'm really excited to hear you know, a real doctor, so to speak, who can talk with us today about the electrical side of, of health improvement. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. How did you get interested in the relationship between first nutrition and health and then electricity and health? Nutrition evolved when I made that conscious decision to move from the list of pills and supplements I was taking to finding the food source. I'm a member of the review committee that monitors research. And in the summer of 2007, I reviewed a research protocol that used electrical stimulation of muscles in people who had recently uh, been paralyzed by a traumatic injury uh, to the spinal cord. That inspired me to research uh, the use of uh, electrical therapy and then to convince my physical therapist to let me have a test session of uh, electrical therapy. Did you notice a, a huge difference when you made those changes? When I started the electrical therapy, my physical therapist said we could probably grow more muscles but he wasn't sure my brain could talk to the new muscles that were grown. He acknowledged that this was very much an experiment, and uh, he warned me that it could be uh, exhausting, uh, quite painful. So we did the test session. It was painful. On the other hand, as soon as I was done, I had this uh, incredible uh, feeling of contentedness uh, and euphoria. I was not exhausted. And I found that by doing electrical stimulation while I was gradually increasing my workout load, it was easier to do the workout. I was able to grow my muscles back slowly. 
And then I developed a very comprehensive program for rejuvenating the muscles of my legs and my back and abdomen. Wow, that is a it's a pretty impressive story. Yes, yeah. So I'd, I'd spend hours every day doing my training program. Do you still do that? I just in the last year have dropped the electrical portion of my training program. Now I'm uh, simply doing weight training, uh, strength training, and uh, swimming week training. So I'd still say that I train about an hour a day. Wow, it's so impressive to hear when people turn around these so-called incurable diseases and not just limit their progress, but actually reverse them. And uh, I'm I'm convinced that that's a possibility for so many people who right now don't really have hope or don't feel empowered to be able to you know, step in and really, really do it. So the fact that oh, you're not absolutely. only doing it, but, but writing a book about it so other people can learn and, and spending your time uh, during your busy day to come on the show, I, uh, I'm impressed by that. And I just want to say thanks again. This, this is the sort of stuff that changes lives. Yes, yes. Let's go back a little bit in time. When you were a younger adult, were you healthy? Did you always have health problems? Like, oh, how no, did you know? Um, I, I was a farm kid, strong, strapping farm girl, uh, played basketball in college. I did taekwondo, competed nationally. In 1978, I was uh, a bronze medalist at the trials for the Pan American Games. In full contact, Walter Waite fighting. I uh, climbed mountains, kayaked, uh, ran marathons, uh, did ski marathons. So I was always an athlete in addition to uh, whatever else I was doing. Wow. So you were a, a strong, young, healthy person. How did you, or when did you first realize something was going on? How, did, how could you tell? So during medical school, I had episodes of electrical pain, and jolts of electrical pain in my face. That was attributed to occipital neuralgia. Uh, that is a nerve in the back of my scalp that intermittently sends bad information. I had an episode of transient blindness uh, while I was out roller skiing. Got a big workup, no clear explanation. Then you know, I had my kids and was doing somewhat less. Assumed that the reason I couldn't ski and run as far had to do with the fact somehow I wasn't pushing myself hard enough. Then I began stumbling and falling. And that's when I went through another big evaluation. And the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis was made in 2000. Being a doc, <clears throat> I took uh, aggressive treatment and went to the best international center I could find, which was a Cleveland Clinic, but continued to decline. By 2003, I was in my wheelchair. And you know that's when I decided that I needed to be reading the basic science literature myself and seeing what else I could do that might slow down the speed of my decline. The idea that you went back and read the basic literature is is really, really pretty cool. I, I had a similar experience with myself where I, I found if I was going to achieve what I wanted, that I needed to go back and really see how things worked. Was your medical training really useful in doing that, or is this something well, that you think a motivated, intelligent person could probably do to at least uh, like, get a I'd direction? I'd say yes to both. The Internet is uh, certainly very powerful. Uh, somebody who has a good understanding of science and is willing to put in the time to read and search may be able to see tremendous connections. In my process, I ended up reteaching myself a lot of basic science, and many of these concepts had not yet been discovered when I first did basic science. So there was lots of learning. I also discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine, and they had some great courses 
to improve my understanding of the basic biology. Uh, And with that, I had this very comprehensive list of brain nutrients. I had been on a paleo diet since 2003, but I didn't know how to structure that. It wasn't until I had this long list of brain nutrients, I said, okay, so if I'm going to get all this stuff in in my food, what do I have to be eating? And then I used that to create a structure for how I was going to manage my food intake every day so I could maximize the intake of things that I said were critical for my brain. Now, when people get excited about the paleo diet, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that we don't really know for most of our regions what was the hunter-gatherer diet for that region because we've displaced the native peoples and have destroyed the habitat. We do know that native peoples have very different diets and they figure out what foods are poisonous, what ones are health-promoting, and design their diet around that. So I don't have access to the Iowans that were natives that had all that information. Furthermore, even if I did, the local habitat had been since destroyed. So I reconstructed using the paleo principles of roots, leaves, berries, meat, fish, eggs, that would be uh, fresh in season, locally obtained. But then in terms of what were the food categories and how much I was going to eat of each category, I used my understanding of basic science to help me design a eating plan that would make it easy to achieve that. So once I did that, within months, magical things began to happen. I was able to walk with a cane, with then uh, throughout the hospital without a cane. I'm on my bike. I'm biking 18 miles. Next year, I'm on my horse. And then I'm out doing clinical trials. The food is where the magic is. Getting that long list helped me better understand how to design a food plan. But I really think the food is the magic here. I am so pleased to hear you say both that food's the magic, I'm of the same opinion, but also that you came back from a pretty sick state, it sounds like. You said in a couple months, the changes were very noticeable, right? That this didn't take you two years of of dieting or something. Uh, And and, and that's what I see in my clinical practice. When I use these concepts, put people on the walls diet, their mental health uh, symptoms improve. Uh, People come back in three months and they're telling me that they observe uh, clearer thinking um, or even moods, fatigue sharply less. People who are overweight are losing weight now for the first time without feeling like they're starving. So marvelous things are happening. Wonderful. And in the people who listen to this show, we we have definitely people who care about their health, but there are a lot of people who are already healthy, but they're looking for an additional cognitive boost or better memory, or they want to maintain their function as they age. Do you think that a mitochondrial diet like the ones that you have, and ours are actually pretty similar in terms of the way we're thinking, is this something that's going to help someone who's already healthy? Oh, absolutely. You know, our uh, research assistants support the study, they do the diet for two weeks so they get a sense of what does it take, how hard it is, and it makes them more effective as coaches for our study participants. And what they all observe is their mental clarity goes up, energy goes up, vitality goes up. So most of the kids are staying pretty close to the diet even after uh, they finish their two weeks. No, I find it fascinating. So here are kids in their 20s who should be at the peak of their game 
and they are experiencing uh, significant health benefits. Wonderful. So you've seen the same exact sort of thing that says you don't have to be sick to benefit and to benefit quickly from addressing mitochondrial function. And for most of us, we have slowly adapted to crappy diets, less energy, less fatigue, making do by taking energy drink after energy drink and lots of caffeine because our bodies are performing so poorly. We have no idea how great energy and vitality could be if we were choosing to eat for health. Music to my ears. Now, there's two things that you mentioned in how you recovered. You talked about removing things and then about adding some things. Can you tell us a little bit about what you removed and then what were the most, maybe most important three things that you added or increased? Okay. So we removed grains, dairy, and legumes. And the reason for that has to do the protein in grains and dairy, uh, gluten and casein, for the vulnerable individual will rev up my inflammation molecules, my inflammation factory, much too much, worsening all sorts of autoimmune problems, increasing the probability of mood problems and neurological problems. By taking the gluten and dairy out, I lower that inflammation. Now, there are also some problems with gluten and dairy in terms of promoting cancer on the dairy protein part, the casein, and on gluten in terms of promoting sugar-loving yeast and bacteria in the bowels that add to more troubles as well. In my clinic, I'll tell people that at the very least go gluten and dairy-free. Depending on how ill the person is, I may tell them they'll do much better if they go fully paleo and suggest that they take out gluten, dairy, and legumes as well. So what did you add now uh, to add to the diet? So in terms of adding to the diet, that's where we're structuring the greens, sulfur-rich vegetables, brightly colored vegetables and berries, grass-fed meat, organ meat, and seaweed. That sounds great. Do you think the current health recommendations might be adding to the increase in MS and other forms of degenerative diseases? Oh, absolutely. There's a terrific article, Saving U.S. Dietary Guidelines from Special Interests from the Food and Drug Law Journal, that tracks the financial relationships of the individuals who've been appointed to the committee that makes this U.S. Dietary Recommendations. And over the lifetime of that committee, the financial relationships with the food industry, agriculture industry, has steadily increased. So, the food pyramid is far more about promoting product than promoting health. In countries where the food guideline recommendations, the scientists that are involved in that can have no past or present relationships with the food industry or agricultural industry, their guidelines look much more like the Walls diet. It's amazing and and shocking to me what's happened, especially with the latest food plate where you thought they might finally fix it. Uh, I I created a spoof site called losemyplate.org instead of choosemyplate. And I'm just kind of shocked that given the knowledge that you have here and some of the other guests on our show who consistently, as medical professionals and researchers, say the same things, don't eat wheat and don't eat milk protein, but it seems very consistent now. And I'm kind of shocked, but not shocked because the business connections are there. But I'm thankful it, that our, our listeners can hear about this from people who really have a personal impact and medical training. 
I think it's unfortunate, but the reality is there's such a strong financial incentive around the food pyramid that it's going to be very difficult for us to see that change. Therefore, to me, what we need to do is to go forth directly to the public, make this information available, get books out there, get lectures out there, because it's going to be up to the people to fend for themselves. It's not up to the government to teach us how to eat. We're going to have to figure that out ourselves. We definitely are. And and one of the things, certainly in my experience and your experience, that's most important is supporting mitochondrial function. Uh, for listeners who are maybe new to the show, uh, mitochondria are the power plants in your cells, the things that generate energy. Now, Dr. Wells, can you Tell us why mitochondrial function support is so important and what people should be thinking about when they think about their mitochondria. Like, what sure. can they do? The reason you and I are alive is because of the chemistry that's happening in ourselves. When the chemistry stops, we die. When the chemistry happens improperly, we will develop a chronic progressive illness. It's the mitochondria within our cell that generates the energy to drive those chemical reactions. So, We know that in our favorite car, we want to put in great fuel, great oil to maintain that vehicle. We would never think to put in sugar and white flour into the gas tank because it would gum everything up. If we want our mitochondria to operate and uh, power the chemistry of life properly, we need to see to it that we are eating lots of B vitamins and minerals to have that chemistry, that energy generation happen properly. So B vitamins, green leaves, green leaves, green leaves, and organ meat. Coenzyme Q, also a very important part of the mitochondria and the generation of energy, that is an organ meat. And so our ancestors knew to eat lots of organ meats, that that was a critical part of keeping the young and the more senior members of their clan healthy. I have a question here, and I ask this of most medical professionals who come on the show. Have you looked into the role of mycotoxins in MS and just in general mitochondrial dysfunction? Mycotoxins absolutely are part of uh, the problem for many, as are toxins from sugar-loving bacteria. So going on a paleo diet that takes away the legumes, the carbs, the potatoes, the emphasis on green, sulfur, and color, what's color all the way through, shifts the diet away from a yeast uh, fungal supporting environment to an environment that supports more of the old friends that are uh, helpful with us. But yeah, candida can be a source of symptoms, fatigue, and exhaustion for many with and without MS. So that's really cool. You're basically saying that things inside your body growing can generate toxins that contribute to mitochondrial dysfunction and to disease or poor oh, performance. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And things outside and the body as well. Things growing in your body. So we have 100 trillion yeast bacteria parasites living in our bowels. We have 1 trillion body cells. So you and I are outnumbered 100 to 1. How about that? That's sort of shocking. It is very shocking, and it goes even more towards the evidence that shows we need to support the microbial ecosystem inside our body, but also even outside our body, because we We, we soak it up from the world around us. We are uh, stewards of an ecosystem. 
And so if I'm a good steward, eating the foods that my ancestors ate for hundreds of thousands of generations, then I'll have my old friends back. I'll have that 100 trillion bacteria, yeast, parasites that, as they metabolize what I eat, make helpful things. And my biology knows how to live with that ecosystem. If you eat white flour, white sugar, even gluten-free white flour, white sugar, I'm going to have trouble. Is it possible that many people are sick from not eating enough? You talked about the importance of micronutrition, and one of the big oh, recommendations sure. that people may, or the health experts are making is, you know, eat less, eat less. Do you think malnutrition or subnutrition might be a major problem? There are numerous studies that have looked at what people are eating, and we see that the vast majority of Americans are failing to meet the recommended daily allowance for multiple vitamins and minerals. So we're starving for the building blocks we need to the biology of life. We are obese because of all the white flour, white sugar, high fructose corn syrup they were eating, to which we are all addicted and is making this invading harmful community of bacteria and yeast that are adding to our misery. So starvation absolutely is a huge problem. Overfeeding with white flour, white sugar, and potatoes, another absolutely huge problem because it's leading to the wrong bacteria in your bowels. So one of the things that I do when I'm working with uh, coaching clients, and certainly something I've done for myself, is to focus on eating larger than what most people think is normal amounts of fats that promote myelin sheath formation, myelin sheath for listeners, is that insulation around our nerves that helps our nerves perform better. As an example, the last two years, I've eaten between 4,000 and 4,500 calories per day of at least 60% fat and -hmm. predominantly saturated fat in the form of dairy fat from grass-fed animals and coconut and MCT oil, as well as grass-fed meat, uh, eggs, things like that. Now, everyone would say 4,500 calories a day. Oh, by the way, I really didn't exercise very much. I am a senior executive and and flying all over the world while I did that. I actually got thinner. I built a six-pack, and my cognitive function is as good as it was ever since I healed it. But what do you think of that idea? Okay, all these extra calories, but with no, no gluten, is extra calories a good idea or a bad idea if people are avoiding the crap foods? If you're having food from the categories that I've outlined green sulfur color, grass-fed meat, organ meat, seaweed, then I don't think people have to be worried about counting calories. You just need to eat from those food groups. In the comments of having the high-fat diet, now you're talking more along a ketogenic diet. There's some very interesting literature that has put that out as beneficial at lowering the risk of seizure disorder for kids with severe refractory seizures. And it also appears to be very helpful for early cognitive decline and memory loss. I hesitate to go beyond that, but there's certainly, in those two venues, some very compelling evidence that this high-fat diet, stressing particularly coconut oil, is very health-promoting. We had uh, Dr. Mary Newport on the show who used MCT oil and coconut oil uh, to reverse her husband's early onset Alzheimer's. She was on a couple of weeks ago, and there's pretty good evidence that it's good, but I certainly wasn't in ketosis the whole time. Even when I'm out of ketosis, I still keep the fat up. But the real thing that, that 
a lot of people who try this, you know, eat lots of healthy fats kind of thing feel within two weeks like transformed from a cognitive function perspective. But some of them get concerned over time, like, well, I'm just, I'm eating more calories than ever before. And they actually make steps to reduce their calories because they sort of, oh, I should only eat 2,000 calories a day. And then they feel a decline in cognitive performance. And there's sort of this belief system around if I eat too many calories, I'll get fat. And then you and I are seeing if you eat the right calories that you don't need to count them. Correct. Do you have concerns about eating a few extra calories here and there as long as they're the right ones? If you're getting calories from uh, nutrient-dense foods, then I'm not at all worried about it. When people start losing too much weight, we push more coconut oil. People are not hungry in our study by any means. I think I remember what hunger felt like. <laughs> um, let's switch to the topic of electrostimulation in the, in the time we've got sure. left on the show. Sure. So many people uh, who listen to the show and follow the blog are, are really intrigued. I, I've used a TENS unit. Uh, I use a CES machine across my brain. Uh, I've done yeah. some kind of Olympic training level electrostim, but you use yours to reverse amazing things. Tell us, how, how did it help you heal? Like, what did it do? We used neuromuscular electrical stimulation protocols. So these are current applied over the muscles to induce a electrically driven muscle contraction. Now, at that same time, I do a volitional muscle contraction that I do. So the muscles being worked out from two vantage points, one electrically, another one that I control. What that does, uh, it lets the muscle cell itself work more effectively. Uh, we see that the mitochondria and the muscle cells are increased. There's a release of a number of very helpful hormones in the brain and in the muscle cell that improve uh, growth of the muscle cell and healing uh, in the brain. We design a exercise uh, and electrical stimulation program that is very specific to each individual based on the physical exam and the examination of their uh, muscle and balance and walking issues. And then we uh, work with that individual to progress their exercise program as they move through. There is no one universal set of protocols that one can use. Electrical stimulation is generally tailored to the person's muscle exam and then advanced uh, according to their tolerance. Could e-stimulation be effective for people who want to increase muscle growth or otherwise healthy? The weight trainers, bodybuilders, have been using electrical stimulation of muscles to get larger, bulkier muscles for their Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Universe contest. They've been doing that for a long time. Olympic athletes know that you can use electrical stimulation to speed the recovery following injury and to get more uh, endurance or more strength. So certainly athletes have been doing this for a long time. I think this could be very helpful for people, say, who are aging, who want to maintain muscle strength, decrease age-related loss, the recreational athlete, and probably anyone who has any kind of chronic health problems that is leading to some generalized fatigue and weakness. It's interesting. In a few months, uh, we're going to be hosting the first Bulletproof Executive, I don't know if we'll call it a clinic or a conference or something, but it'll have two full days with an Olympic 
class, actually a world champion uh, powerlifter who uses e-stim in order to train uh, professional athletes, but he's going to come in and train a group of non-professional athletes who are looking more at, at health improvement and performance improvement in their daily life rather than, you know, catching a hockey puck with one eye closed sort of people. I'm kind of excited to hear that you've had the same effect or the same effects yeah, yeah, and that yeah. you've, you've noticed this. Now, here's the next question. I have a few, I have a whole office and my little biohacker mad science laboratory full of all sorts of funny stuff. And I have relatively low end TENS devices, but the sorts of things that you're using, is this just normal TENS or is this something a little well, bit more it, special, different currents? It has a slightly different frequency so we can adjust the frequency parameters. The device that we use manufactured by DJO, it's an MPEMPI 300 PV, and we use a variety of programs within that device, and then train the individual with uh, which muscle groups we're stimulating, gradually increasing the rigor and intensity of the training program. Now, if I wanted to pick up one of these machines, obviously I'm not going to buy this at uh, my local pharmacy here. Is this a medical use-only device, or is so this something this that... So this is a uh, medical device. The one that we're using is medical use. You need a prescription. And I would find a physical therapist who does uh, neuromusculological STEM and have them help you identify a device that they're comfortable with and then design a program that would be beneficial. By the way, for all listeners, I fully agree. I'm in a unique situation in that I run an anti-aging nonprofit group, and I have lots of medical professionals, including my wife, who's a physician, who can help me when I do some of my crazy biohacking. But if you don't know what you're doing with the electrical currents, you can actually hurt your heart. Yeah, you, you that, can't be doing that on your own. Yeah, higher current levels. I, some of the work I've done is actually really, really painful. And literally in a day, I turned my duck feet I've had since I was probably since I was born. They flipped themselves forward and completely changed my posture in, in 45 minutes of really painful electrical shocks. So oh, interesting. Yeah. It's kind of amazing what you can do. And I know that some of the more quantified self type of people who are listening are going to be jumping on this sort of idea, but I just would like to insert that little safety warning there that work with a professional. If you decide you're gonna get a home unit or something, do it with help. Now, is there a correlation in your experience between mitochondria function and using these electrical protocols? We don't really know the answer to that. My belief would be that microcurrent tends and neuromusculatural stem probably do improve mitochondrial uh, function. But I don't know that I have any basic science that I can quote to say, this is what we're seeing and what's happening. I might be able to help you there. I know a guy who's talking about 500% improvement in mitochondrial function from eSTEM, and I know his data came from somewhere. I'll ask him. Yeah, that would be good. Now... Is it really true that on the way to a checkup after you started your own treatment program, you actually pushed your wheelchair up a hill after it died? Well, I'll tell you the story. So I was going to meet the chair of medicine. I meet the chair every two years. And I decided that going across the U was going to walk a block uphill. It would be too far, so I was going to take my scooter. But I hadn't been in my scooter in a while. Uh, but I got in it, started driving over, and it died on the way up the hill. So I disengaged the drive shaft, pushed my scooter the rest of the way up the hill, left it by the entryway uh, with the patient advocate, and walked onto the uh, general medicine or the chair of medicine's office. 
And though I got chewed in, sort of chewed out for being late, apologized, said, you know, I'm really sorry. My scooter died on the way over. So he thought I had to wait for the patient mobile. I said, well, no, actually, I disengaged it, and I pushed it up, and then I walked over. Of course, he hadn't seen me in about nine months. He's like, oh, my God, but what happened? And, and we had uh, a long conversation then about what I'd been doing, that I was off uh, the disease-modifying drugs. I was using diet and electrical stim. And he became very instrumental in my finding the senior scientist colleagues to help me design a rigorous clinical trial that we are now using. Just an amazing story. I love it. In nine months, um, you, you came that far. So so impressive. Dr. Wallace, we talked a little bit about micronutrition and how that affects MS. What is your opinion on supplements? Are they something people should be worried about? Should people take them even if they're doing something like a paleo diet or bulletproof diet? What do you think so, about those? Uh, supplements introduce a hazard of getting things out of proportion. We'll take vitamin D. As you increase your vitamin D, you need to have more vitamin A and vitamin K on board to keep everything in balance. If you have more copper, you need less iron. If you have too much zinc, it will influence how much uh, copper you have. If you have too much iodine, it will influence how much selenium you have. So as soon as we begin to take single nutrient supplements, we run the risk of getting things out of proportion. I'm much more impressed that food is key. Some targeted supplements may be beneficial. In addition, uh, certainly for most of us, we need vitamin D because we're inside too much. Some kelp and algae are helpful because most of us are landlocked, and that can be helpful. When you start getting beyond that, then I, I think having some uh, physician guidance or input can be helpful. And you need to know that you may be causing some nutrient imbalance issues. You also should be mindful that who is manufacturing the supplement? Was there a third-party inspector to verify that this, in fact, contains what it says it contains? So looking for a place that has the good manufacturing processes seal would at least guarantee that what's in the bottle is the same thing as what's on the label. Quality control is a major issue because uh, supplements are, are not regulated today, and, and I'm actually glad they're not because we've had progress there that might not have happened otherwise if, if we just left this up to Big Pharma. But at the same time, Sometimes when you buy you know, the lowest price supplement at Costco or at the, the pharmacy, in my experience, you're sometimes not really saving very much money because it doesn't work. It, yeah. it's, it's not what it says it is. Now, there are a category of supplements, uh, well, we'll call them brain nutrients. And for me, they were transformative at the beginning of, of my really big performance improvement. And these are things like acetyl-L-carnitine, choline, and all of its various flavors, phosphatidylserine, things like those that are present in egg yolks and some other foods, but they're also available in supplements. Are these something that you would supplement with versus like minerals, or are those something you would just say, eat more, eat more coconut oil? Food is always safe. As soon as we start doing supplements, then it becomes nuanced, and it should be individualized to yes. that person's circumstance. Okay, so you're not opposed to those things, but you wouldn't take them sort of all willy-nilly for someone who didn't have a need. No, I think the paleo diet, a little kelp, a little algae, a little fish oil, maybe vitamin D, is likely sufficient. There are circumstances where, in fact, more aggressive resuscitation supplements are appropriate, 
usually that's for someone who's got some health issues. I'm just very hesitant to put out a very generic statement as to which supplements are helpful because it, it really depends on the person's individual circumstances. I think testing for supplements, um, blood or, or urine or skin or, or saliva, depending on what supplements, what levels, is, is absolutely not done enough. And I know I'm working with several different startups who are looking to take that whole testing process and make it uh, both personalized but also consumer accessible. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that that helps people to make better supplement decisions. But I, I've been working with an anti-aging physician who, along with me, but measures north of 100 variables or so uh, every six months. And that really helps me to, to know I, I'm getting too much vitamin D, not enough vitamin D. Without that kind of knowledge, I need 16,000 IU a day because I'm a poor responder to vitamin D. But right. you know, a lot of people need half that. There's no way I would have known if I was taking half dose if I hadn't have, you know, spent 45 bucks on a blood test. That is true. As soon as we start using supplements, having some way of monitoring that usage is very appropriate. So you know, are you taking enough? Are you taking too much? I think that we are definitely in agreement on that one. We're winding down the show now, and we have a a couple questions left. And the first question is, is one that all of our guests answer. And that question is, what are the top three things that people in general should look at doing to improve their performance and their health and just their overall quality of life? And these can be medical things, nutritional, whatever things you think are most impactful for human beings. What are they? So I'll come down to three. It has to do with, first, your diet. Get it more and more paleolithic. Green sulfur color, grass-fed meat, organ meat, and stopping the gluten, the dairy. I'm thinking about stopping uh, grain altogether. Uh, two, lower your stress hormones. Uh, things like meditation, massage, Epsom salts, baths can be very helpful. And three, move your body. Start with wherever you're at and gradually increase your movement so that you're getting both strength training and uh, aerobic training. That's an impressive list and certainly one that I believe works on on, on all three levels there. What's your number one, in your experience, most effective stress reduction or stress management technique or technology? What do you use for that? Teaching my kids to take Epsom salts baths when they're stressed. It was one of the best stress reducers for the whole family. was helping teaching your adolescent children to do things like Epsom salts bath uh, meditation so that they can lower their stress hormones. Epsom salt is what I use in clinic uh, very commonly to help people uh, with that. Meditation, visualizations can do that, so can nature time. Another technique that can be very helpful is journaling about the trouble in your life three times a week. We have hundreds of studies that have shown that simple act of journaling about the troubles has huge favorable impact on future health costs, quality of life, family life satisfaction as well. That's a very, very nice technique for folks. Thank you for sharing those. Our final question, after this really amazing story you have and and this really great interview, I know that there are going to be people who want to know about your book and your upcoming memoir. Can you tell us where they can find more information about you and your books? Please visit my website, Terry Walls, T-E-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S dot com. Also, come visit my foundation, the Walls Foundation. Uh, We've got books. We have lectures. The book, Minding My Mitochondria, talks at length about what I did, why, has 100 recipes. 
the memoir up from the chair we're working on, and we'll stay, keep everyone posted in terms of future developments there. I would also make the note that I've been donating sales from the lectures, the books, to support more clinical trials, testing these interventions and others. So the funds that are generated are plowed back into research. Dr. Walls, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for all the good you're doing. I am so impressed and thankful that we have solidly credentialed medical professionals like you who are paying attention to this and doing the clinical trials work that probably won't get funded by drug companies so that people can have more faith and understanding that amazing improvements in their health are accessible in relative short order without crazy drugs. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Walls. Take care. Now it's time for Upgraded Self Radio listener Q&A. The first question is from Heather. Is buckwheat an acceptable food? I would also like a list of acceptable coffees. Well, buckwheat can be an acceptable food, although it's certainly not all the way green on the Bulletproof diet. Buckwheat's actually a fruit and not technically a grain. If you have a, a really healthy gut, you can probably tolerate some buckwheat. If your gut is damaged, though, you ought not to eat buckwheat. In fact, I would say you're better off eating white rice in order to minimize the amount of toxins that you're going to be getting. Buckwheat isn't particularly high in nutrients. It's pretty much on par with rice from a carb perspective, so there isn't a real benefit to eating it. If you do it maybe a couple times a week, you're probably fine. I do know that allergies to buckwheat are more likely than allergies to white rice. In fact, I'm allergic to buckwheat. And you can detect that even on a blood test, like food allergy blood tests. So one thing you may want to invest in, especially if you're dealing with chronic problems, is just having some quantitative data about what you're sensitive to instead of just trying to figure it out with elimination. In terms of a list of acceptable coffees, there's a blog post, and we'll link to it in our transcript of this, where I describe how to find the best coffee in your city. And it turns out that unless the company is controlling the creation process of the coffee, in a relatively tight way, that the list of acceptable coffees is very hard to come up with because what may be an okay batch this time isn't okay next time because a lot of companies source their batches from different locations. So it's not like I can say, you know, Pete's coffee is good and Starbucks coffee is bad. I can tell you Pete's coffee is likely to be better than Starbucks coffee, but that both of them are sourcing from a huge variety of plantations that use different processing methods for their coffee, and that the chances of there being biogenic amines or mycotoxins in coffee that comes from multiple places is just higher than it is from a single place. So follow the advice on the blog. There is no guarantee that your coffee is going to be very low in mold or free of biogenic amines. The only way that I know of in order to get the risk of those things as low as possible is to control the entire process. That's what I did when I created my coffee. And I did that because I love coffee and I want to be able to drink it and I want to feel awesome every time. It's you know two or three bucks a pound more than your average coffee from a nice coffee place. It's not terribly expensive, but if you want to go find one in your city, I tell you exactly how to do it in the blog. There is a cool way to tell if your coffee is going to taste horrible, though, and that's if it has a Starbucks label on it. <laughs> uh, I didn't say that, but I would agree. There's also something, if your coffee tastes like it needs sugar, there's probably something in it that shouldn't be there. Good coffee ought not to need sugar. I just introduced a friend to Bulletproof Coffee earlier today. And this is a guy who always drinks sugar in his coffee. And he took a drink of it and said, oh my God, it doesn't need sugar. Like I've never had this experience before. 
that sort of thing, your palate will not lie to you. If it needs sugar, it's not good coffee. Our next question comes from Kent. He says, what's your take on post-workout carbs? You know, most muscle building material I've seen indicates that insulin release is a necessary component of getting nutrients to muscle cells or fat cells. If you're looking to gain muscle, is it important to eat carbs after lifting? Well, there are several parts to this question. And the first is, do you need more carbs for lifting? And yes, you generally do need to eat a little more carbs if you're trying to gain muscle mass. But when you eat them is not necessarily as important. How many carbs you eat depends on your training volume, a little bit on your personal preference, and your current health status. You know, if you're really insulin resistant, you shouldn't be eating a lot of carbs. If you're more insulin sensitive, you'll be okay. More active people do need more carbs. When you eat the carbs is not as important. If you're eating carbs to spike insulin after a workout, you are wasting your time. In fact, you actually need less insulin to get the same amount of carbohydrate into your muscles after a workout. Also, insulin maximizes protein synthesis at only 30 milliliters per liter, which is easily obtained from a standard meal. So it's not like you have to, you know, eat this massive bowl of carbs to max out insulin. You can have a fairly moderate normal meal. A standard mixed meal elevates insulin levels over 100% over basal levels for five hours. So if you've eaten a moderate to large-sized meal about five hours before your workout, you don't need anything right afterwards. Once that even showed that glycogen depleting training enhanced the action of insulin after the workout, because GLUT4 transporters, which are these little molecules that actually help nutrients in your cells without insulin, were increased by the exercise. And some studies have actually shown that really glycogen depleting workouts, like, you know, riding your bike as fast as you can for an hour, these athletes consumed 300 400 grams of carbohydrate after the workout with zero fat storage. So there are some benefits to having it after really glycogen depleting workouts, but it's not necessarily essential. And most of the longer-term studies have actually found there isn't a difference between having it, you know, five hours after your workout or having it right after. As long as you're getting the total amount of macronutrients in by the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And also the idea that insulin causes fat gain is not necessarily true. You can still get fat without high insulin levels. Fat can also be stored by acylation-stimulating protein, or ASP, and fat-specific protein 27, or FSP 27. So keeping insulin levels low won't necessarily cause fat loss. And we have references in the show notes to all this stuff, too. So in your case, I would eat some extra carbs, but you don't have to have them after the workout. I want to add to that, that from a bulletproof perspective, doing cyclical ketosis matters. Even if you're weight training, you want to spend some time every week in ketosis for the anti-aging and the health benefits you get from it. There's also some cool stuff that we'll talk about later about protein cycling. Overall, there's definitely a case to be made if you're in a muscle growing phase for adding carbs. But if you are sort of going for the bulletproof, I already have significant muscle mass, I'm already lean and I want to maintain eating extra carbs when you're not doing lots and lots of training is not a good way to stay younger for a long period of time. Your carbs should be relatively low and you should cycle in and out of ketosis by having more carbs. This is a question that's specific to weight training for putting on muscle, not for general, oh, I'm working or I'm you know a non-athlete sort of thing. So don't interpret this as, oh, I can be on the Bulletproof diet and eat a bunch of carbs every day. That's not going to work as well. In fact, it may not work at all compared to the techniques we're talking about. Absolutely. It's totally context-specific in this case. The next question is from Andy. 
I've been doing my best to follow the diet, the coffee, and the intermittent fasting regimen for a little over six weeks now with some very nice results. I've dropped some weight and often feel quite good. But one thing has been happening to me that's driving me crazy. I very often wake up in the night with a mouth that is incredibly dry. In the past, I would sleep through the night without an issue. But now, even if I begin pounding water before heading to bed, I wake up during the night to go to the bathroom and urinate. What is going on? Very interesting and very predictable symptom here. It could be a side effect of a new supplement or a medication you're taking, but the most common thing that causes people to wake up in the middle of the night just parched and having to pee is that your body's flushing toxins. So once you get toxins, whether these are toxins that come from fat being burned, if you're losing a lot of weight, this could easily be what's going on. And people who go into ketosis for the first time get really bad breath and oftentimes have to pee a lot. Their pee smells bad. It's because they're dumping toxins. If you do it for a while, you stop dumping toxins. So what I would suggest here is up your vitamin C, consider using glutathione, and definitely add some activated charcoal to your regimen. That may help you to excrete toxins without putting the same burden on your kidneys. Drinking lots of water is a good idea. If you drink a lot of water, have a little bit of salt with it, particularly in the morning. That can help. And just track whether what you ate during the day does this. For some people, berries can have this effect. And sometimes it's a specific food trigger. But for you, given that you're recently on this new regimen, your body is dumping toxins you've been storing in your fat cells for a very long time. And your kidneys are like, I don't want to store this stuff overnight. Get it out of me and give me some more water to help reduce the strength of these toxins. If you are exposed to, say, a moldy food, if, say, you're eating something that's likely to be causing problems like a soy sauce or some sort of blue cheese, that also can be a trigger. For me, I'd never wake up to pee in the middle of the night anymore, but I used to wake up all the time when I was losing all of my weight and learning how to have a, a low-toxin body. And to this day, if I eat something that I know is full of toxins, the odds of me waking up in the middle of the night, just parched, it, it goes way up. It's predictable based on your toxin load and the toxins you put in that day. Something else I just thought of is if he's not used to ketosis, it might just be the ketones bodies that are dehydrating him too, because you do lose a ton of water weight if you haven't been doing it for a while. That's possible. It's true. Although after six weeks of this, does he say six weeks in here? He says... Yeah, but he says it's been going on the whole time though. That's right. It could just be ketones and you may just be adjusting. So I'd stick with it and try those recommendations with the charcoal and the glutathione and see if, if it moves. I think it's unlikely if you're getting good results that you have like diabetes or anemia or arthritis or something. Those can also cause the symptoms, but I don't think that's what's going on here. The next question is from Alex. What do you think of hemp protein as a supplement? You know, hemp protein always gets paired with hemp fat. Hemp fat is high omega-6 oil. Omega-6, as you know, we keep harping on, on the show and on the blog, you don't want to be consuming much, if any, omega-6 oil. It's easy to oxidize and it's highly inflammatory. Hemp seeds are 45% polyunsaturated fat. These are the things we're fighting against on the Bulletproof Diet because they're bad for you. Hemp protein isn't that high in nutrients or many of the growth factors that are important. It doesn't boost glutathione like the undenatured whey protein concentrate, you know, the upgraded whey that we've designed to boost glutathione. Hemp protein is you know, kind of hippie, so it's really expensive. It doesn't taste that good. It's normally reserved for animal feed, so I'm not seeing a big benefit from consuming it. I think it's kind of a waste of money. I've seen some arguments about the amount of globulin that's in it and that being helpful as a vegetarian source of protein, but that's also a bit of a misnomer because 
going for vegetarian sources of protein is generally not going to be a great idea. You should go for animal sources of protein because the vegetarian ones usually come with defense systems from the vegetables that don't want you eating their proteins. Rely on animals designed for concentrating those proteins. That would be cows, sheep, animals like that. Let them do the heavy lifting. I think animal protein also has about three times the branched-chain amino acid content of hemp. And branched-chain amino acids are the main ones involved in muscle growth. So if you're taking whey pro- or hemp protein as a supplement for increasing muscle mass, you're not going to get as good results as if you took an animal-based protein like whey. Army, would you go so far as to say that you'd be better off to just uh, use the medicinal herb there instead of eating the protein from it? I didn't even know they used hemp as a medicinal herb. <laughs> uh, yeah, hemp is marijuana. Oh, well, it's not the same thing. but It's the same plant, but certainly there's no active ingredient. I definitely there. know a lot of people who are really jacked who smoke a lot of weed, so I'm sure there must be a connection. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, honestly, <laughs> I don't, I, it's really funny. Hemp protein is like the latest trendy thing, and I've seen arguments from very committed, passionate vegans saying, look, it's just as good, but the fact is hemp protein is not just as good as whey or a steak. It doesn't taste as good, and it's not as good for your body. Sorry. Definitely true. If you have any questions for the podcast, you can contact us on Twitter at, at @bulletproofexec on Facebook at facebook.com slash bulletproofexecutive or by leaving a comment in the show notes for this episode. The show notes will be displayed on bulletproofexec.com along with links to everything we talked about today and a full transcript of the entire episode. Now it's time for the Biohacker Report, which is the part of the show where we talk about some of the coolest research that came across our screens in the last week or so. The first study here is one about vitamin D deficiency. And we talk a lot about vitamin D on the show and how important it is in order to get your levels up. This is a study where they looked at vitamin D deficiency among healthy infants and toddlers. And it's instructive because what's happening to little kids probably A, happened to you when you were little, and B, it also is a good indicator about general health. The fact is you can sometimes get a little bit more information when you're looking at very young people because they see doctors much more frequently. This came from the Children's Hospital at Boston, and it was published in the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. The study just wanted to see how prevalent vitamin D deficiency was in toddlers and babies in Boston. Boston's cold. It's relatively far north. So if you live in Phoenix, the answer may be different. But if you live in that same general area, you are likely to have the same sort of thing going on in your neighborhood. They looked at 380 supposedly healthy toddlers and infants in Boston. So these are kids who don't have symptoms of vitamin D deficiency. They are, quote, healthy. 40% of them were deficient in vitamin D. About 7.5% had rickets, vitamin D sickness, like vitamin D deficiency sickness, something that we should have eradicated centuries ago, just about, but it's coming back because of fear of the sun. I know pregnant women who won't go in the sun at all because somehow they think it's kryptonite or something. And about 32.5% showed demineralization of bone tissue. This is just a great example of why it's important to ensure adequate nutrition for yourself. But also, if you have kids or you're thinking of having kids sometime in the future, you need to pay attention to this stuff because you'll live longer, you'll be healthier, you'll be happier. And frankly, you'll waste a lot less money on medical care for yourself and for your family if you take care of something that costs about five bucks a month to do, like vitamin D supplementation. The next study flips the coin a little bit and looks at elderly people. And this is called Protein Pulse Feeding Improves Protein Retention in elderly women. 
This was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition by French researchers. Now, as a little background, one of the reasons people lose muscle mass as they age is they have a decreased ability to respond to dietary amino acids. This means they don't get the same amount of protein synthesis muscle growth they did when they were younger from eating the same amino acids. It's called anabolic resistance. This study looked at how changing the timing of protein throughout the day could increase the ability of amino acids to stimulate muscle growth in these elderly women. So they took 15 women aged about 68 years old and randomized them to a diet where they ate 80% of their total protein in one meal and a diet where they ate their protein evenly across four meals throughout the day. Nitrogen balance, which is a marker for muscle status, was 50% higher on the diet where they consumed most of their protein in one meal. And protein synthesis was about 20% higher in the group that consumed most of their protein in one meal. The study was on elderly people, but it definitely flies in the face of the old bodybuilding recommendation to eat, you know, like 50 or 30 grams of protein at each meal spread out throughout the day to keep amino acid levels high. And it actually showed the opposite was true. So if you want to experiment with this and you're an elderly person, try having most of your protein in one meal and see if you get better results. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if I qualify as an elderly person yet. I'm not even 40. But I tell you, when I eliminated protein from my breakfast and I just go for straight bulletproof coffee, which is, you know, 100% fat with a focus on short and medium chain things, you know, basically grass-fed butter and MCT oil, man, I really have a better day and I notice a difference with my muscle growth. And I have my protein usually in two meals, not one. And those two meals are timed using the bulletproof intermittent fasting. The best results are really obvious there. If I put protein all day long, it's just not the same. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably could attest to that. Yep. So it's not just for older people. Our last study in the Biohacker Report is called TDCS-Induced Analgesia and Electrical Fields in Pain-Related Neural Networks in Chronic Migraine. That is a mouthful. And it comes out of the University of Michigan School of Dentistry, Harvard University, and the City College from New York. And it was published in the journal called Headache. Now, I know a lot of listeners to the show don't necessarily have migraines, but this is an exciting study because the researchers here were working with TDCS. TDCS is a relatively new brain stimulation electrical technology that uses essentially a 9-volt battery that's been turned down so it's a lot less electricity running through the head. And you put one end of the battery, basically on an electrode, somewhere on the head and the other end somewhere else on the body, and you just allow current to flow through. It sounds really simple, but it works as long as you get the level of current right. This study looked at 13 patients who had more than 15 migraines per month. After 10 DCS sessions, they had a 37% drop in pain. The researchers found that TDCS treatment went really deep into the brain and affected nerves that they previously thought were entirely unreachable. The authors of the study really stress that this is a preliminary report, but it looks really promising. Now, the fact that we can use a 9-volt battery and a device that costs as little as 100 bucks to affect nerves that we used to think were unreachable, potentially without surgery, that's huge. I have a TDCS unit that was designed for transdermal drug delivery, and I let a friend borrow it who had a really bad headache during the South by Southwest uh, music festival and kind of technical conference. She was really hungover. It was kind of funny. 
it took 10 minutes of running the anode on her prefrontal cortex before literally it was like someone threw a light switch. She turned right back on. And I've certainly used TDCS myself for cognitive benefit. The stuff works. There's a group out there, and we reference them elsewhere on the site, who is now making a do-it-yourself TDCS kit for $99. It's a Kickstarter project, I believe. And I've talked with those guys. I'm actually uh, working to give them some good advice on how to bring their stuff to market. So I think that if you're a layperson, you have no knowledge of the brain, TDCS is something you should work with a a therapist on, someone who works with brain types of stimulation. But if you are a biohacker and you have some knowledge of Google or how to work your own brain, this is a very accessible technology that could have good effects. It also could have negative effects. It's at the cutting edge, but it doesn't cost $10,000. It costs 100 maybe 200 bucks. So it's kind of a neat thing. It's definitely worth reading about and making a decision for yourself about whether you'd like to incorporate this into your wellness routine. You know if there is any research looking at how it affects younger people's brains, say under the age of 20? I doubt there's much research unless it's focused specifically on ADD or autism types of things. They'll be looking at addressing pathologies. Researchers are particularly scared to do work on people who are under 18 because of liability. So it's unlikely you'll see mental performance types of studies, but you may find that you know people with autism or with sleep disorders benefit greatly from TDCS. Frankly, Army, you know, as a, a guy who's under 18, there's good evidence that until you're about 22, 23, that that some of your neural pathways aren't all the way established. I think you're you're playing with fire if you're looking at, at doing this as a really young guy. I think that you should focus on building out your brain kind of the way it was meant to be and training it really extensively with things like dual impact training with bulletproof mindware and by teaching yourself to meditate because you'll crystallize some of those pathways that aren't yet crystallized. And when your brain is built all the way up the way it's it's supposed to be and you've trained it so those pathways become permanent, then you should start the real hacking. I guess I should stop playing with car batteries then. Yeah, licking those batteries might not be the best way to stimulate things. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that sounds good. One less thing to worry about, too. If you enjoyed this, we always appreciate help by leaving us a positive ranking on iTunes. Swing by our sister store, UpgradedSelf.com, and take a look at some of our collagen protein, which is good for your skin. Or, by all means, try Upgraded Coffee. That has been a labor of love for me. It's taken me many, many years to understand all the variables that go into a cup of coffee that makes you feel like a great golden god. It doesn't give you a headache or jitters. So by all means, if you haven't tried it, try it. If you want to find your own sort of maybe bulletproof coffee, you can certainly do that. We publish the full instructions on the site. I'm on a mission to help people always have the most awesome coffee and thus the most awesome day they possibly can have. And coffee is one way to do that. There are many other ways. And that's what biohacking and being bulletproof is all about. Army, catch you next week. See you later. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. 
This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.